This is the Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and uprocks.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. My guest today is Michael Beinhorn, which is a name you might recognize from the liner notes of some of the biggest rock albums of the 90s. Michael produced Super Unknown by Soundgarden. He produced Celebrity Skin by Hole, Mechanical Animals by Marilyn Manson, Grave Dancers Union by Soul Asylum. He did a couple of Chili Peppers records in the 80s, including their first big hit, Mother's Milk. And he did Untouchables by Korn, a record that Jonathan Davis of Korn recently called the Heavy Metal Asia. (laughs) He he told me that in an interview. Uh, So for that reason alone, I wanted to talk to Michael Beinhorn to talk about the making of the Heavy Metal Asia, as well as all those other records. The stories behind them, the struggles, the egos. Michael has a ton of great stories about some of the biggest personalities in all of 90s rock. So if you are into any of those bands... You're going to love this episode. If you're not into those bands, I think you're going to like this episode as well. Michael uh, has had a long, fascinating career, and he was a great conversationalist. So uh, before we get to that, I want to tell you about our sponsor for this week, and it is our old friends at Indeed.com. Now, when it comes to hiring, you don't have time to waste. You need help getting to your shortlist of qualified candidates fast. That's why you need Indeed.com. Post a job in minutes, set up screener questions, then zero in on qualified candidates using an intuitive online dashboard. Now, Derek, I saw you using this earlier looking for a new, what was this, podcast host? (laughs) We're looking for all kinds of hosts for all kinds of podcasts. There's no need to... I'm I'm a little nervous about this, man. (laughs) But I know you're going to find someone good with Indeed.com. Now, when you need to hire fast, accelerate your results with sponsored jobs. New users can try for free at Indeed.com slash podcast. Again, that's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms, conditions, and quality standards apply. Okay, so Michael Beinhorn, one of the big rock producers of the 90s. Someone who, uh, again, worked with Soundgarden, worked with Hole, Marilyn Manson, Korn, Soul Asylum, Red Hot Chili Peppers. He was nominated for Producer of the Year in 1998, the year that Celebrity Skin and Mechanical Animals came out, and was a real, I guess, sonic architect of the alt-rock sound uh, that took over the world in the 90s. So Michael had a lot of fascinating stories to share about that time, and uh, it was exciting to hear from him about that. So why don't we get into it? Here's me and Michael Beinhorn on the Celebration Rock Podcast. Um, I was reading about you getting ready to, to talk to you today, and, of course, I know your name from the liner notes of so many albums that I love. So I'm definitely familiar with your production work. But one thing I didn't know is that you basically got started in the jazz world and that you were one of the co-writers of Rocket for Herbie Hancock. And uh-huh. I, I didn't know that was your background. Like, can you talk about that? Like, I mean, were you originally like a jazz musician? No. <laughs> I am not now, nor have I ever been nor will I ever be a jazz musician. I I have never had chops to start with. I never will have chops. Um, What we really started out doing was being more of like a sort of avant-garde-ish sort of um, musical collective. 
Um, my band was called Material, and um, it was myself, a German named Fred Moore, uh, a guy named Bill Laswell playing bass, and uh, we just played around New York for many, for well, not not that many years, but it was at a time when the the music scene in New York was really fertile. And a lot of different forms of music were colliding. And jazz definitely entered into what we were working on. We, we worked with a lot of jazz musicians, but I was never one of the jazz musicians we, were, we worked with. <laughs> <laughs> um, fortunately, what I was doing mixed well with the jazz element. Um, the record that we did with Herbie didn't really have too much in the way of jazz on it. I think it was it went far enough into the uh, pop, R&B, and especially hip-hop um, realm of things that it, <laughs> it, 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 didn't, it didn't test people harmonically too much. Right. I mean, because, I mean, Rocket was a huge hit, and of course it's gone on to be one of, like, a real foundational song of, of hip-hop. I mean, it's been sampled many times, but, I mean... It, I imagine that the, the success of that must have blown you away. I mean, who would have known that that song would have been as huge as it was? <laughs> um, yeah, it, came, it definitely came at a time when that, thing, when, when that kind of thing seemed pretty unlikely, but you also had more leeway in terms of what the public were, were open to listening to. Actually, not what they were open to listening to, but what record companies thought they, they could like, throw at them. You know, nowadays I think record companies that seems seem to um, they 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 kind of undervalue people's tastes, right. so they're not willing to give them stuff that might challenge them. So people really only know what they know based on what the record companies decide to release. Back then, it was a much different story, and of course, there was the video for uh, for this song as well, and that really helped sell it. Um, you know, I think without that it probably wouldn't have been as successful as it was. But the fact that it was one of the most played videos on MTV at that time um, was definitely a game changer for the song. Right. You know, you mentioned, you know, being in, in the band material and being this, in this sort of avant-garde New York music world, more of an art scene than a pop scene. I mean, did you, oh, yeah. did you ever like, imagine that you would eventually get into pop music or was that an accident in a way? <laughs> or like mainstream music anyway? <laughs> Well, if you if you use the term accident relative to my, my I guess my career or you know the the directions that things have taken, then I I say every step of the way has been some form or another of an accident. Um, <laughs> it's never it I, I I don't think anything was ever really pre-planned as far as that goes. It sort of all fell into place. Right. Um, in the same way, I was never really much a fan of rock music. <laughs> Believe it or not. <laughs> Like, it just didn't really, I, I wasn't, I, I guess I, I had gotten so into R&B, and um, I, I was listening to a lot of jazz, even though I couldn't play it particularly well, um, and a lot of avant-garde music um, that I, I kind of moved away from a lot, from a lot of rock. So the idea of, I, rock music just seemed so foreign to me. Um, you know, especially when we did that. And the music that Material were making didn't have a trace of rock in it anywhere. So the fact that I wound up producing rock records, that started out as being a novelty, but then it sort of became sort of par for the course. <laughs> Just kind of happened. I mean, 
because I, I know the first record of yours that I ever heard that you worked on, I guess I, I guess I heard Rocket, so I, that would have been the first, but the first like rock album would have been Mother's Milk by the Red Hot Chili uh-huh. Peppers. And I know you did a Chili Peppers record before that. And certainly yeah. the Chili Peppers, especially at that time, they were a rock band, but they were they were also a funky band. I mean, they they weren't like just a straight down the line rock band. I mean, was no. that was that sort of the big sort of transition point for you, like working with that band? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was a it was a major transition. Um, in fact, it was interesting because they had they sort of were the result of so many different styles of music. But they didn't really have a definable sound, per se. I mean, you knew when you heard a song that they did, it was definitely the Chili Peppers. But you couldn't really define what it was. And to some extent, it was so ill-defined that it was kind of like, I don't know. (laughs) Um, You know, I mean, the first two records, while there's good stuff on them, I, I, I always felt that they didn't quite get across a specific identity of the band. And for whatever reason, I felt compelled on that, on the record that we, we did the first one to explore, to go further into the rock territory to help kind of iron out, um, a sound for them to help really sort of direct it. And I think that worked, um, in terms of energy and, t- and the, and the tone of the record, because it brought forth, the more punk rock elements of the band without, without un- losing the funk aspects, but they, they just needed to kind of, they, they needed to underscore the energy part of the band, like the more energetic and also focus more on tangible melody lines and things like that. So that was really the focus of that record. And that really veered, helped me veer more into um, the territory of working on rock records. I mean, like, how did you end up getting involved with them? Because as you say, you didn't really have much interest in rock, and you certainly didn't have a big track record working in, in that arena yet. How did you get <laughs> Not any. Yeah. Like, how did you get that job? <laughs> well, at that time, I think this was around 86 or 87, I was, like, completely, like, destitute <laughs> and just going to record companies and begging for work. Um, which is which is a lot easier than to do if you were just if you were um, a record producer who had no real um, nothing to speak of, no management behind you or anything like that. I mean, I had one hit at that point, but you know it had it had already been like four years, three or four years since that record had come and gone, and you know everyone's looking at you kind of like, yeah, okay, well you had that one record and nothing in between, so who cares? <laughs> So I I was meeting with A&R people, and I went to EMI Records one day, and I met this one gentleman, um, I think his name was Michael Barrickman, um, and he said, I may have something for you, and he gave me demos uh, for the Chili Peppers, and at that time, the record company had no idea what to do with them. Uh, I found out later that there were people at the record company who who had actually had it in for the band <laughs> and uh you know so they they weren't they weren't well appreciated at their label uh and i think it might have been 
it, it might have been sort of a thing, thing of like, oh, you know, I'll just palm this off on this guy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, these these this band is so far gone, like no one cares. And uh, you know, obviously for me, it was like, oh boy, a gig. <laughs> and you know, I, I took the tape back and I listened to it, and I was like, oh wow. You know, it was like it was a mess. Um, it was very unfocused and very raw, but there was definitely something there, and there was a lot of personality. And I could hear that the people in the band, who I, I had no idea who these people were at all, but I could hear that they actually seemed like they could play their instruments. And all of a sudden, I was like, I started getting ideas of how to rearrange songs and how to work with these guys. And I was just, I just got really, really excited about it. And I, I, I kind of lobbied for the project. I went out to meet them on tour. And uh, based on that, I think I got the gig. And... Of course, you. And, and what was the first record that you did with them? The record before Mother's Milk. I'm blanking on Uplift the Mofo Party Plan. Right. And then, of course, Mother's Milk is the record that made them, it kind of broke them as a commercial band anyway. I, I remember, like, Higher Ground being the breakout song from that, that, that video yeah. over MTV. And yeah, also, it was. Didn't they, didn't Freshante join the band, too, with Mother's Milk? Because, like, Hill Hill Slovak yeah. died, I think, in between there. So, yeah, he did. Like, he what, did. He, what, thought, he, he OD'd. In like 88, I think it was. Like, w- w- yeah. W- well, how was that to deal with during that time? You know, it was, well, it was actually, bands. The, the period between records with them was very, very difficult because they really went through a serious identity crisis and there were still drug issues. I think Anthony fell off the wagon like a time or two. And Hillel's issue was really, really bad. Um, and... I think they kicked him out of the band and brought him back in, but he just sort of fell apart emotionally, and then he then he passed away. And uh, after that, Jack, who was drumming with them, Jack Irons, he kind of. I think I think it was it was just too much for him. Like they'd all known each other since they were really young, and Hillel's death like just absolutely devastated Jack. So he had to go, and all of a sudden, the Chili Peppers are just fleeing Anthony. They have to find a guitarist and a drummer. And they they went through a couple of guys themselves, and the, the choices that they came up with were just absolutely, like, appallingly bad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, you know, I just sat with them, and I was like, look, we have to hold proper auditions. You know, this is not the way to go. You can't just, like, bring guys into the band to do this. And, you know, we held, we held drummer auditions. For, I think it was we held the drummer auditions first, um, I don't remember which came first. I know that they kind of, they, they wound up with John. Like I got, one of them called me up and said, we got this guitarist and, you know, and I heard him playing with them and I, and I discovered that he could actually write songs, which is something that they didn't really have before. And I was like, Oh, this is great. Um, it, you know, and they actually had a, a week, a week and a half of like drummer, um, rehearsals. And, um, I think Chad was like one of the last guys to come in and we just been listening to people who were so like <laughs> inappropriate to the band and couldn't play. All of a sudden this guy comes in, he's like a wild man maniac and he looks too metal for them, you know, so they're immediately prepared to write him off yeah. and he just sits down at the drum kit and he starts playing and everyone's like, Oh my goodness. But believe it or not, it took them a long time, like several days at, le- at least, or maybe a week to call him up and say, hey, we'd really like you to join the band. 
And I can't, part of that was me just nagging them, going like, are you going to fucking call this guy already <laughs> and, and get him in the band? You're not going to find another drummer like this. Come on. <laughs> right. It was really funny. Yeah, they were hemming and hawing because they thought he was a little too metal. Okay. Um, but, like, when those pieces fell into the puzzle, like, all of a sudden something really clicked. Right. I mean, you could feel it. And they started rehearsing, and that's really where the body of Mother's Milk came from. And John, of course, brought in um, Knock Me Down, which even though Higher Ground was the big hit off the record, Higher Ground was sort of like the pivotal song because it introduced John as a songwriter, someone who could actually come to the band with very strong melodic and harmonic ideas that they didn't have prior to that. So they had all the elements of the band um, that that really kind of that stayed and that were identifiable prior to Chad and John joining, but now they had someone who could actually write a song, and that's when they became a serious threat. Right. So you, you know, so it was really a matter of like the next record that you guys make is going to be huge, <laughs> and, and <of> course, <laughs> which it was. It was, yeah. Blood Sugar Sex Magic comes out after that. Yeah, it was again, enormous. But again, you know, Mother's Milk really helped set the table for that, and you were. Yeah with the band during a pivotal point where they were moving from being an underground band to being more of a, a big-time rock band. And it makes yeah. me think about a few years later, you work with Soul Asylum on Grave Dancers Union, which was a similar record for them, where they were this underground band for several years, and then that record comes out, and it makes them this platinum-selling MTV-type band. I mean, do you feel like that was your reputation at the time? Like, this is the guy you bring in to sort of polish the rough gems and to turn them into, you know, like more of a hit maker type thing? It kind of it got that way after a while because I, I started to get on a really good streak with it. Um, it. What was interesting with Soul Asylum was that when they got signed to, to Sony, um, a lot of people were looking at, at the people who signed them going like, are you, are you serious? Like this, <laughs> because they... <clears throat> they'd already been at a major label prior to that. They'd been with they they were at A and M, and they made two or three records with A and M, and they lost their deal because they didn't they didn't it didn't really materialize into anything, and their records just kind of got weaker. So when they got signed to Sony, people were like, "This is crazy. This band had already been proven that they'll never amount to anything. Why would you do that?" But then there was a demo tape that came with the band, and once you heard the demo tape, you're like, oh, okay, this is why they got signed. <laughs> you know, because the first track on the demo is Runaway Train. Right. You know, uh, and when I first heard this demo tape, I was like, I don't know why every producer under the sun isn't desperately clawing at this thing trying to get this gig. Like, I was, it was... It was a shock to me that there were, it was basically me and maybe four other guys who really wanted to work with this band. Um, you know, because it was, it was obvious. I, I mean, I, at that point in time, I don't think I could have told you by listening to a record, oh, this is going to be huge. Right. You know, I mean, for one thing, I think that's a bit of a pretense to start with. But, uh, you know, when you listen to a recording and you go, I really like this a lot, like immediately, or you go, I would really love to work on this record. And not for any other reason than the fact that you just know that what's on there makes you feel good. Right. You know, then you, you know, you've got, you've got a pretty reasonable 
you, you can have a pretty reasonable suspicion based on that that it could be pretty successful. I mean, I mean, we all know about the scene politics of the '90s and how there were a lot of people. You know, like back then, people would still talk about selling out, and it wasn't only <laughs> like if you put your song in a commercial, it was like you'd get accused of selling out if you got signed by a major label and you had a video on MTV. Like, that was something people talked about in the 90s a lot. Did you find that there was resistance sometimes from these bands, like when you would come in and maybe try to make them sound more professional or or to, like, nail down instrumental tracks and make them sound more perfect? I mean, or were they on board when they were working with you that that that, that was a transition that they wanted to make? Um, I... I don't really think that that was that that was an issue. Um, I had I've, I've had bands complain after the fact about records that we did together. I mean, with Mother's Milk, I know the Chili Peppers were not happy with the fact that a lot of the guitars that John did were more sort of more sort of high gain sounding. Um, unfortunately, the band weren't around for a lot of the recording, so it's not as if they really had it that, that they decided to make their voices known until most of the recording was done and they started to hear it go, wait a second. And I was like, well, where were you guys? <laughs> like, it was just me and John, come on. Um, but generally speaking, I think, like, the, the artists that I work with, when they would hear the way their tracks sounded, they would embrace everything. Because my idea has always been to create a sound that is personalized to the artist that I'm working with. You know, something that's not repeatable, something that I don't take with me to the next record and try and just exploit over and over again. It's got to be something that's a one-shot deal. And it really is, I exemplifies and expresses what the artist does to the best that we can all capture it. Uh, You know, and if there's any polish at all, I think it really pertains to it, I, I have an obsession with detail on you know on certain sonic elements in the mix, and I like I like things to be audible. Even if there's lots of distortion, I like there to be character to it, and for the, for you to actually be able to to feel and hear the textural the texture of the things that you're listening to, rather than creating like a big wall of noise. Right. Um, you know, so that there's separation. And you can make out what the what, what each individual instrument and performer is actually doing. I mean, I feel like when people talk about production, and I'm talking about music fans and even music critics to a degree, you know, people always talk about the production, something being overproduced or underproduced, or the production's <laughs> changing things. And I always wonder, like, do people really know what they're talking about? Like, what, no, what, they don't. <laughs> people think, don't know what they're talking about because production is a very nebulous. Music production is actually a very nebulous term. Like, and it's come to mean many different things over the course of many different decades. Like, at a cert, at one point in time, record producer was the guy who basically directed the entire recording project, you know, and who, if if they had engineering chops, they were involved in that. There are guys like Tom Dowd who are basically rocket scientists <laughs> who could fix a console, place a mic, arrange a song deal with the psychology of the band members. Um, you know, basically he was sort of like a, a, a musical Swiss army knife, <laughs> you know, um, nowadays a producer is some guy either who makes your beats for you huh, and 
you know, and comes up with some cool melody and programming to put over, you know, to put over the track that you make. Or he's a guy who sits in a room and is instruct is directed by the artist, like what kind of sounds he wants. Like I want it to sound like this, and doesn't have any input as far as like the arrangement goes. To me, record production has to involve elements of arrangement. It has to involve the a kind of an, having an overriding sense of what a project is going to look like, even if that vision changes drastically over the course of the project, it still has to be there. And there still has to, there has to be a collaboration between the artists. That's the way, that's certainly the way I've worked. I've, I've always worked and I always will work. Uh, I think to do any less than that is to, is to um, give a tremendous disservice to the people who are paying you. You know, if P- I, I feel that if people are paying me, you know, a, a decent amount of money to do my job or any money at all, really, relative to their budget, um, I have a responsibility to them, right. you know, and sitting around in the back of the studio reading the paper or, <laughs> you know, or, or just kind of like taking direction from the artist who doesn't even know anything, you know, what, what any of this stuff means, that, that to me is a disservice. You know, I, I I wouldn't do it. And I think that when people talk about production, they don't understand that you can't actually hear record production. What you're listening to is the mix. You know, you're hearing elements that may you don't even know when they were put into the recording. You don't even know who's necessarily responsible. I mean, if, if you're familiar with recording, you can pretty well figure out when a record's been well recorded. But you can also tell when a record's been badly recorded but really well mixed. You know, there's all different facets to it. Um but yeah, a lot of times people, I've been, I have been accused of overproducing records that, um, <laughs> that uh, where I essentially mixed the record half asleep at five in the morning. Like I was literally nodding out trying to do this. It was probably the worst sounding mix I ever did in my life. Uh, I, I was, I sent the two, the two bus of the console that the stereo mix portion of it to a Fairchild compressor. I was blowing it up, and I read a review where the, where the reviewer accused me of adding my 24-track um, glossy production approach. I, I can't remember exactly what it was, and I was like, ah, it just goes to show you. You know, like, people think they know, and they just get an idea in their heads, and that's kind of what they roll with. You know, they're not actually listening to what's going on. They don't know. What album was that? Um, I'd rather not say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like when when people picture record producer, they also picture this person, almost like a Svengali type figure who's like coaching up the the band and saying like, "Oh, you need to go down deep to think about when your mom died, and now you're going to record this song." Like, to what degree? That happens. Like, are you? So that like, happens. Like, like, to what degree are you being a therapist then in the studio? Like, can you think of an example like where you had to do that with a band? Um, I. I don't think I would be that quite that manipulative with someone. Um, you know, I, I uh, you know, like you really, uh, there's something very romantic about the idea of do of doing stuff. Like I heard of Bob Ezrin duct taping Peter Gabriel um, at the up a pill, a column or something like that in a recording studio to get a vocal performance out of them. <laughs> You know, and I've heard of other people um, who've, uh, 
basically screamed at artists, um, you know, and, and just like wound them up so badly that they were complete, either a complete mess or wanting to fight when they had to sing or, you know, on and on and on with stuff like that. And, you know, look, if it delivers you the performance that you like, that you love and you can sleep at night after doing it, that's fine. I, I don't think I could really go that far and I don't think I ever have. Um, I have had very serious conversations with people, but I also try and understand their point of view. And um, part of this, I think, is to get a person to a place where they're able to to get that to have that same kind of quality performance that they would get without the theatrics, but imbue the artist with a sense of like I did that. You know, to get to empower them rather than at the end of it to say he manipulated me to do that because the artist is still never going to feel good about it. Right. You know, I mean, I, I seem to recall that Aerosmith um, did that song, I Don't Want to Miss a Thing, which is one of the first times that they actually, maybe the first time that they used a song that was written by someone who was not in the band. I mean, they co written, but this is the first time that they used an outside writer who wrote the whole song and just gave it to him. And apparently at that point in time, it was probably the biggest hit ever. And they were very resentful because it was essentially forced on them. Right. You know, I mean, it doesn't matter if they make a lot of money off it. It's like if you if you force someone, if you make someone feel manipulated, even if it's even if it's the biggest hit they've ever had, they're not going to like it. They're right. not going to feel comfortable with it. I mean, they may come to terms with it eventually, but it's still it's they're still not going to have they're not going to be entirely comfortable with it. Okay, we have more of my conversation with Michael Beinhorn here in a moment. I just want to tell you about another sponsor for this week's episode, and it is our old friends at Blue Apron. Uh, Now, Blue Apron, if you listen to this podcast or many other podcasts, it is the best way to feed your family really good food in not a lot of time. You choose chef design recipes on their website, and they deliver these fresh, seasonally-inspired ingredients to your door, and then you get them to your door, and you can cook these meals in as little as 20 minutes. And I know, for me, like, I'm a parent. I have, I have two young kids. My son is in, is in first grade. And this is the time of the year when you really need something like this because the kid gets home from school. You know, he's hungry. He needs something to eat. You're tired after working a long day. But you don't want to just give them junk food out of the microwave. So you can actually make them a good dinner from these great ingredients, and you don't have to take a lot of time. What do you need to do to take advantage of this? Well, I have a special deal for my Celebration Rock pod listeners. Check out this week's menu at blueapron.com slash celebration. That's blueapron.com slash celebration. Check out the menu, sign up, and you're going to get your first three meals for free. Yes, that's for free if you go to blueapron.com slash celebration, and you're also going to help the podcast. So delicious food, you help us out, everybody wins. So again, go to blueapron.com slash celebration and get your three free meals today. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Okay, let's get back to the conversation with Michael Beinhorn. One thing I read about in terms of coaching that you did with a band was on Super Unknown when Soundgarden was making Black Hole Sun that you played Frank Sinatra records for Chris Cornell to kind of have, I guess, to maybe emulate more of a croonery type quality more than like the wailing vocal sound that he had? I mean, was that the idea with that? Not so much. Um, what, I, what I was really trying to impart to Chris was to kind of move a little bit away from the cookie-cutter approach that people take 
to phrasing songs. Um, and that, that's been more prevalent, I'd say, over the past, like, 30, 40 years, where people basically do, they do a phrase, da-da-da-da-da, stop, ba-da-da-da-da, stop. Like, when you listen to a Sinatra record, for example, it's a whole different thing. Like, his vocal performance sits over the top of whatever he's singing on. He uses it as kind of a bed. Right. But he's really, he's using it as like a point of departure for him to play with the lyrics more. I wasn't suggesting that that Chris, um, you know, sing, as you said, you know, more more like a crooner. I wanted him to listen to Sinatra's phrasing because there's something very interesting in what he does. He took a lot of his vocal phrasing from Trump, from listening, from being in a band with a trombonist. And you can hear when you listen to his slides, like, ooh, like that. Like he'll slide up and out of notes, very much the way a trombonist would slide up and out of notes. And he also plays with dynamics more. And my, my thought was like, you know, maybe you can extend some of your lines a little bit longer, you know? Maybe you can, you know, clip phrases here, draw phrases out more, you know? Sing a little bit softer here. Make it a little bit louder there to emphasize something that you really want to say, or that, you know, a, a point where you really want to emphasize the mood more. You know, just to play with the with the vocal phrasing from a more kind of, uh, I guess, informed place. And you know, I think he 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 laughed. <laughs> he thought I think he thought it was kind of goofy, but I know that he got it. Right. Uh, and. You know, when when we finally when we finished the vocal on that on that song, it was pretty obvious. You know, I mean, it wasn't. I wouldn't say that 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 any of that was very overt. It was pretty subtle, but you can hear that, like the way he's planting his vocal in that song, it's not it's not deliberate in the way people just kind of like do things in very you know chopped up, measured sort of like this goes here and that goes there. It was very it was very lyrical. Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah, and that's really what I was—that's th- really what I was hoping uh, for with him. What are your thoughts about Super Unknown overall? I mean, cause to me, that's like one of the great rock records of the last twenty-five years, and I think certainly in the you know, you. in the scope of Soundgarden's career, you can hear the leap forward they took with that album, where they were able to sort of retain the power of their early records, but just the variety of sounds on that record—it's just so much wider. Uh, and uh, did you feel that at the time? I mean, how do you feel about that record looking back? Um, I'll, I'll tell you, I, uh, there has never been a day that's gone by that I have anything other than good feelings about that record. It was a very, very difficult record to make. Um, it took a lot of effort, um, I think on everyone's part and it was worth the effort. Um, it was, from from my perspective, it was very consciously designed to have a specific effect on people. Um, it was important to me that these guys make a recording that was expressive and that was a, that was emotional and riveting to people who listened to it. And I, I knew that they could do it, and I was amazed about. Just how the, the the synchronicity of it, how it just how it came together, uh, even through 
some of some of the difficulty that was experienced in making it. It was just an extraordinary uh, piece of work. I'm, I'm incredibly proud of it, and I'm incredibly proud of those guys. And, you know, and Chris, God rest his soul. Um, uh, you know, he did a he did a remarkable job on that record, and I I, I bow to his artistic prowess. Wait, wait, what, what was difficult about that album? Um, it was very tense. Those guys weren't necessarily happy working with one another, and uh, there there was some there was a little bit of inner combat. Well, combat. I don't know about that, but. <laughs> There was it, it. It got a little bit touchy between uh, some of the band members and me once or twice, um, and basically trying to create the foundation for the record. That took a little while. It took several months because when we got started, they didn't have all the pieces. Uh, it wasn't complete. Uh, in fact, I'd say that they had about they had about a third of a record, maybe even less when uh, they sent me a demo and I was like, no, we really have to, you know, we're not ready to go into a recording studio yet. You know, you guys have a, have a lot more writing to do. I don't think they were particularly happy about that. I, I, I think from some of the guys, there was a sense of like, we'd really like to make this record fast and get in and get out. And I had a really strong sense that this band, that their next record was going to be pivotal for them. Uh, it was at that time you could really tell who might be the next big artist. Like you would always get it. You'd always know of a band who'd done pretty well up to that point, And people would be like, their next record's going to hit. It's just going to be big. <laughs> right. And Soundgarden at that point in time was that band, you know, at least in the rock world. And I felt that being tasked with that project it was my responsibility to help them get to that point, to help them make a record that would be epic for them. Yeah. After that record comes out and it ends up being such a huge hit, I mean, was that, I imagine that there was probably a long list of artists that wanted to work with you at that point. I mean, were, were you just being inundated at that, at that time? With um, I'm, <laughs> maybe. I, 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 I actually don't. I don't recall. I certainly I wasn't hurting for work at that point, right. um, but my management company, I think, they, I think they fielded more stuff than I was aware of. Like I found out about projects that had gotten turned away years later, and I was like, oh, I would have done that. Yeah, I would have done that. Uh, <laughs> they were a little bit too protective, I think. But uh, is there anything you can remember you know, that like I turned away that you would have wanted to do? Um. Well, I think I probably wouldn't have mind working with Stone Temple Pilots. Right. <laughs> you know, those records came those records came out pretty well though, so. Yeah. So, you ended up working on uh like two big records in 98, and I know that you were nominated for like producer of the year that year at the Grammys in in yeah. 98. And Mechanical Animals by Marilyn Manson and Celebrity Skin by Hole. And yeah. with Celebrity Skin, there's two things I want to ask about that, because there's, there's a couple sort of mythology things that people talk about with that. Number one, people always talk about Billy Corgan being involved uh, yeah. in the writing of that record. And some people even said, like, oh, he wrote a lot of the record in the same way that people say, oh, Kurt Cobain wrote a lot of Live Through This, and, you know, <laughs> that's sort of maybe overblown or whatever. I mean, what was your impression of Billy Corgan's involvement 
in the writing of songs and uh, on that record. Billy co-wrote some stuff. I think he co-wrote about three songs with her. He definitely co-wrote Celebrity Skin. I don't remember the others. Uh, and he worked with them for, I don't remember, like maybe 11 days or something. Like Originally, I think he was slated to produce. And then he had to back out because he had to work on his record. So he very kindly recommended me, um, which I was very surprised about um, since we'd never, we'd never actually met. Um, but I think that, well, unfortunately, this is a very sexist business and a lot of people didn't like Courtney and still don't. And I don't, I think a lot of people couldn't accept it. Maybe she was actually capable uh, you know, I mean, she did have, she did have a good co-writer in Eric, um, Erlinson. Like, I think they made a good team as far as that went, you know, but I, I just remember like reading her lyrics and, uh, seeing this, the, seeing the, the melodic ideas that she came up with. These, these were her ideas, you know, and I was like, this is, this is not someone who's untalented. This is not someone who rides on other people's coattails. Right. This is someone who's legitimately who's legitimately talented, who deserves to be appreciated for that. No matter what you think about her as a person, um, she she's she's extremely talented. She's an exceptional lyricist. Yeah. Um, I I, um, I I loved what she had, and she was constantly revising stuff as well. And she just get it, the lyrics would get better and better. And I I you know she she's. She's she's great, and I mean, you ended up kind of getting thrown under the bus with that record too, with with the drummer, right? I mean, because because <laughs> the drum because the drum because like I, I know like there was a documentary, or I think she wrote a book even, Patty Schmeel, yeah, where she blamed yeah. you for the drum tracks being re-recorded. But I'm guessing yeah. that the that the that Courtney Love probably wanted that done too. Is my guess. I'm sure that you didn't force that to happen. I mean, what, what was the story with that? Well. It's it's kind of a it, it's kind of well not convoluted but it's sort of long. I mean, the thing is that when I came on the record, when I first met with the band, they I I, first, I already had a reputation for for canning drummers on their recordings. So the band said to me, "We'd like to work with you under one condition that you don't fire our drummer." <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and I was like, "Well, okay, all right, that sounds fair, you know." Um, and I. I sat down with Patty and and I said, look, if we're going to do this, then you and I are going to be a team. You know, we're going to work on this together. I'm going to be here with you every step of the way. I'm going to be cheerleading you and we're going to make this thing happen. You know, this is, this is the only way it's going to work. And we spent over a month and a half in pre-production, you know, rehearsing every single day. And, uh, you know, I, I I basically helped write her drum parts with her, and uh, you know, and I coached her through everything. And I really, I, I made sure that she felt supported, that she felt like she had someone who who had her back. And then we we rolled into the studio, and uh, we started we started setting up. And she sat down at the drum kit, and I realized that I had a different person in the studio than the one who was in the, uh, who was in rehearsal. Um, she wasn't playing the parts properly. Like we spent a lot of time working parts out and, uh, it's the whole thing changed drastically very quickly. 
And I was kind of between a rock and a hard place at that point. And I, I worked with her for three weeks trying to get performances, um, during which time I think I started to become very resentful because I, you know, I couldn't fire her. Um, so I finally went to the band and I was, you know, after a lot of deliberating and I was like, look, we have a serious problem and they didn't want to hear about it. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, all right, you know, they were like pro tool it, do whatever. And I, you know, I went back and we kind of continued on and Finally, one day I realized Courtney was going to be was going to be dropping by the studio because basically no one showed up while we were doing the drum track. It was just myself, the drummer, and the engineer. And Courtney came in, and we I had I I made sure that one of Patty's tracks was actually playing when she came in, and she just sort of recoiled in horror, and she was like, "What is that?" I was like, "That's your drummer," and she was like. Oh, that's that's unbelievable, <laughs> and that's pretty much how it unfolded. Yeah. Um, I didn't ha- I didn't go into the recording project with a replacement in mind, so I had to kind of scramble. Um, fortunately, the week before, when I first went to the band, I immediately called up someone who I'd worked with before, a guy named Dean Castronovo. Um, and asked if he was available. I spoke to his manager, who's also my friend. And so he was on deck uh, in case this went down. So he was, you know, he was ready to go. But uh, it was a very unpleasant situation. And I I don't mind telling you, I, I felt very bad about it. I felt bad about it because I knew that it was going to hurt people. Yeah. And, you know, this is never, it's never pleasant. You know, but the thing that's the thing that's significant is that this band had also tasked me with something else. They said we want to make an ultra pop record, like we want to make something that's really poppy. And all their reference points were bands like Fleetwood Mac, ABBA, you know, stuff like this, where you've got super solid rhythm sections. You know, if you're making that was their reference point points, records that were very very polished. And where you didn't, where nothing, where everything was supporting the melodies and nothing was deviating. It wasn't the kind of raw record that they'd made before. That's not what they wanted to do, you know? So from that perspective, it's like, oh, you can't really pro tool the drums because then you take all the groove out of it, you know, which is also taking away from what what the vocal is doing. So you really need to have a very good drum performance on something like this. And that's really where, you know, where the whole thing came from. Um, you know, to Patty's credit, I think she worked very hard. This kind of thing does happen sometimes in recording studios. People fall apart. Right. You know, they, they, for whatever reason, it doesn't work. You know, and there's nothing that anyone can do about it. I've seen it happen before. Some people take it well. Most people don't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, if you think about it, though, like putting yourself in their perspective, it's one of the most humiliating, awful things that you could possibly go through. Right. And, you know, I always have to think about that when I go to someone and say, this is not going to work. You know, I mean, at the end, the band actually said, we're not telling her you are. (laughs) So it got left (laughs) to me to, you know, to, to say it. 
Right. You know, to actually like to, to actually make the pronouncement directly to Patty. Yeah. And yeah, it didn't go down well. I mean, I said, look, this is really tough, you know, but it would be really cool if you stayed in the studio at least and helped help Dean learn his parts and just feel like you're a part of this whole thing because I don't want you to feel like you're being discarded either. Um, and that worked for about a day. <laughs> <laughs> she just, after a day, she was like, I can't stand this. Right. You know, this is... This is horrible, and I was like, oh, I, I can't blame you. You know, I, I, I don't, I, I, can't, I can't even imagine. Well, I can. I mean, everyone's been rejected in some way, shape, or form from something that they wanted to do, and it's, it's, it's tough. You know, it really is. I wanted to ask you about mechanical animals too, which you were working on around the same time. I mean, that's such a decadent-sounding record, and of course, Marilyn <laughs> Manson was going through a lot of craziness at that time. I mean, when I listen to that record, I just imagine like mountains of cocaine and like strippers and all this stuff happening in the studio. Like, was it crazy in the studio or, or was that just sort of a figment of, of our imaginations listening to it? <laughs> <laughs> or did you, did, you have to, did you have to sign like a non-disclosure agreement about the making of, of this record? No, no, I just don't want to incriminate anyone. You know, I, <laughs> It's. I think if you can imagine it to some extent, it might have happened. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's all I'll say. Well, how do you make um, a record though in an environment like that? Especially someone like you, who again, you you talked about how you're very detail oriented. You obviously care about preserving really good performances. How do you make a record and be professional when there's craziness going on? Well, there's a couple of things. Uh, you know, for one, I think that you have to you have to make yourself immune to the craziness. Number two, you have to be working with people who are capable of rising above their own craziness <laughs> and recognize that there's a certain point where they have to leave that stuff outside and just get to work. Um, you know, and then there also have to be some times when you, as the producer, have to get in the midst of it and say, look, I'm not having this anymore. You know, we're working. This is not the time for this. Uh, you know, you have to recognize when to do that and when to hold back and keep your mouth shut. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have to do that you a know, lot during that record? Did you have to, like, you know, be the dad and put your foot down and say, um, yeah, let's get to work? I think, I think if I tried to become too parental with those guys, it would have backfired real fast. <laughs> right. You know, the, they wouldn't have responded well to that. There were times when I did and it was effective but I had to pick and choose those times. Um, you know, the, it, it wasn't the kind of thing, it's not the kind of thing that you can do consistently with people, or especially people like that. Um, you know, because some of them are just waiting for an excuse to get into it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just as, a, just as a diversion away from having to work or, you know, whatever's like, whatever they're thinking about over the course of the day. Uh, you know, but these guys were also incredibly prepared to make a record. You know, they knew their parts. Um, most of the guys in the band were extremely good players. Um, so it wasn't the kind of thing where there's too much screwing around going on. You know, the drummer was great. Twiggy was fantastic. You know, he's, he's such a good musician. Um, Pogo had everything prepared. Like he just, he knew exactly what he had to do. Um, it was, you know, from that perspective, it was, it was good. And Manson, 
knew the range of his voice very well. He knew he he knew what he needed to do with it. And uh there was a you know, there was a pretty decent roadmap to follow as well. And the thing is is that you can only do so much screwing around when you're in a recording studio anyway before you just start to go like, what a waste of time this is. Let's do some work. Right. I mean, <laughs> you know, like if that's what you if that's what your primary occupation is, I mean, you're an artist first, right? Right. Was there ever any fatigue though for you? I mean, you're obviously you're working on these big records, but you're also working with these huge personalities. You know, certainly Courtney Love, Marilyn Manson. You know, I, you've been complimentary to them, but I'm sure it was difficult on some level. Was there any point where you felt? Because I mean, I know, I know you're still working today. You're still producing records, so you weren't too burned out by it. But was that ever a thing where you felt like, oh my god, like I can't believe these people? <laughs> it's like this is insane. Um, I'm tired of dealing with this kind of thing. It it never really it never got too bad. Like I think it it would happen occasionally, but it would all I'd always recover really quickly. I mean because. Fundamentally, I, I, I love what I do. And to me, it's, it's fun working with people. It's fascinating work. And it's also a wonderful challenge to help people kind of rise above their neuroses and really <clears throat> come into this place where they're expressing themselves in ways that they haven't before and unlocking all these doors for them, you know, and watching them really shine. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. And it's it's very motivating and uplifting, and it's uh, dare I say a little addictive. <laughs> you know, one, one thing I was curious to ask you about um, was Untouchables, the the Corn record. Uh, I uh-huh. I recently talked to Jonathan Davis, and he, oh yeah, he still says that that's his favorite Corn record. But he just talked about the amount of time and money that went into that. He said they spent. Oof. He said they spent like Oof. four million dollars on that record. A lot of it be- was because they had to keep their crew on retainer. Three point two. Three point two million. Um, Three point two. And he was just talking about just the, the amount of time that you guys took to make it sound Oof. the way it did. And he kind of posited that record as, in a way, an end of an era because he felt like there's no way anyone would spend that amount of money, certainly on a rock record, now. And I'm wondering if, if you feel like that's also true. Like, oh, like, absolutely. Yeah. He, um, he called it the heavy metal but, Asia, by the way, after the Steely Dan <laughs> record, which I thought was a great way to describe it. That's, <laughs> that's I, think that's, I think that's fantastic. It, it, and I think he's right on all counts. Um, you can't make a record like that anymore. Um, rock music is seen as kind of like a, lo- a losing kind of prospect now from the point of view of record companies. Um, they put most of their money behind pop artists and hip hop. Um, and it's rock isn't something, it's something that they invest less and less money into. Um, the idea of bands or is basically, it's, it's basically being distilled down to this idea now of, a, you know, four grungy guys traveling around the beat up van. So why should we give them a half million dollar advance anymore? <laughs> you know, they're not going to sell records anyway. So what the hell difference does it make? Right. Um, you know, I mean, that's, that's just the way the industry sees it. And they see it based on what they see as, you know, as marketable, what's selling, what isn't selling. They don't really consider the fact that, oh, no one really has made any really great rock records recently. So maybe that's why no one's buying any rock records. Um, but, you know, cause and effect is something that is never, 
<laughs> it hasn't it hasn't resonated in the music industry for decades now, so right. I don't expect them to develop any new intellect anytime soon. Um, <laughs> but no, I think for the time being and probably into perpetuity, no one's going to spend that kind of money on a rock record. You know, we were very fortunate because Korn were, and all these other artists, they were very, very big artists. And their record companies wanted them to succeed wildly. And the potential was there for them to do so. You know, I actually, uh, the, the whole record that I did didn't cost much less than, than the, that corn record, believe it or not. Oh, wow. And I remember, yeah, I, re, I remember that I was getting scared because like money was flying out the door. And I went to the president of Geffen, this guy, Eddie Rosenblatt. And I said to him, Eddie, I'm freaking out because like my budget is, is going crazy here. Uh, you know, you know, we got to rein it in. Like, let's work on it. And he looked at me and he said, just make the best records you can make. <laughs> <laughs> this is the president of a major record company. And I was like, if that's my, if, if that's my mission, that's what you're getting, right. you know? And that was the end of the conversation. Oh, that's amazing. You know, he, but he understood the nature of what he was dealing with. You know, this is a risk. This is a risk-heavy business at its best, at its very best. Best when you do when you're involved in music as a business and you're risk averse, then you don't understand what the product is. You don't understand what you're selling, and you're going to make shitty, safe, conformist records that ultimately don't have any staying power, any lasting value. Right. And that's what a good deal of the of the industry has become now, because people are too risk averse. They're not willing to take chances anymore. I mean, Untouchables, even though Korn were a huge band, that was a risk. It was a big risk. Right. You know, I remember when I was, I had a meeting with those guys at one point, and one of them said that he actually felt like the band was over the hill. <laughs> right. And, no, but I, I realized that he was echoing something that was kind of out there in the ozone, in, you know, that was out there in, in the world. That people, some people actually felt like that. And I was like, this is the challenge then. You know, let's make a record that makes you guys not irrelevant. You know, where you're really saying something. I think we can do it. Yeah. You know, and it seems like uh, <laughs> 17, uh, what's it, 16, 16 years on. Yeah, I think we did. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, Michael, I feel like I could ask you questions for hours here, but I've already gone over my time. So I just want to thank you so much for giving me time uh, to talk about this. It's been fascinating. It's my pleasure, man. Thank you. All right, Michael. Hey, take care. Okay, so that was me and Michael Beinhorn getting into it, talking about his career. That was so many good stories. I honestly could have talked to him for another hour. I definitely would have pressed him more on mechanical animals. I feel like there were a lot of good drug stories that he didn't want to tell. You know, I could tell he was a little leery about it, but if we could have worn him down, I think he could have maybe shared some more. Yeah, he was all about how professional they were. They were, exactly. <laughs> Twiggy Ramirez being a great guitar player. They, yeah, I'm sure he is, but like, you know, what was he doing when he wasn't playing guitar? That's what we want to know. But maybe next time we'll have him back. Uh, guys, thanks again for listening to this week's episode. Uh, we wouldn't be here without you, so I always make sure to thank our Celebration Rock Pod supporters. Thank you so much for being out there. Also got to give a shout out to Derek Madden. The man makes it happen. Thanks for producing us, Derek. And thank you to Josh Copperman for writing our theme song. Thank you, Josh. Guys, we will be back again next week with more Celebration Rock. We will talk to you then. On the Westwood One Podcast Network. 
Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen.